Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. Today on the show, we have part one of my conversation with Anna. Anna grew up in a fundamentalist Christian family as part of the Quiverful movement. She and her six siblings were not allowed to attend school and were very isolated from the outside world. Everything about her childhood was strictly controlled, from the clothes she wore to the media she had access to. She was expected to teach herself from primarily religious texts, as well as teaching and caring for the younger children. Her future was laid out for her as a submissive wife and mother to many children. She left at 19 with the help from some members of her family, starting a life in a very unfamiliar world with little education. It was daunting, but also thrilling. Seven years later, she's still sifting through memories. She makes videos on TikTok recounting her experiences and has found that many other folks grew up in similar circumstances. Many kids are undoubtedly still in that situation, and Anna hopes she can raise awareness and play a part in helping others. Anna is a very engaging speaker. And what she shares, of course, is entertaining, but also so moving and has so much depth. And it makes you wonder about what it would be like if you had been raised that way and had had to live that life. Here's part one of my conversation with Anna. I cannot tell you how happy I am to be speaking with Anna. I am so happy to be able to have you on the show, to be able to talk about so many things. But I want to let people know, actually, my son had sent a link to me of some of your TikTok videos, which I had a chance to watch. And I want to be able to come back to some of the content on those videos. But I think that it's so telling and for so many reasons, just about your childhood and then the repetition of certain events and certain themes in people's lives because of their childhood experiences, et cetera, et cetera. And so before we launch into other things, would you mind taking a moment and introducing yourself? Well, hi, I'm Anna. I've been making TikTok videos for what, like four months or something now and didn't realize there were so many other people who grew up like me and who would relate to my story. I grew up in a Christian fundamentalist home, kind of part of the quiverful movement. You could also call it evangelical. It kind of falls under multiple umbrellas, but none of them are great. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. None of them are great. Right. And quiverful. So that's a term that some people have heard before on this show. Can you describe what that is? So the way my family interpreted it, because everyone sees it a little bit differently, but uh, the basic premise is that contraception is evil and that having as many children as possible is good. And there are elements of racism. Uh, Some people go as far as to say that we need to outbreed all Muslims. (gasps) Oh, wow. 
not even kidding. I have found videos of leaders in the movement saying exactly that. Most of them use a little more coded language like, oh, we need more Christians. We need more voters, more Republicans. It's all very political as well. It can look like a lot of things, but generally big families, strange looking families, often homeschooling families as well. Recently, there have been a number of interviews done by some of the people who have been on some of these shows where they had a couple dozen kids and that it wasn't as picture perfect behind the scenes when the cameras were not rolling. And they've they've come forward with those stories, which is really important just for people to know kind of what a sham reality TV is in general, but especially really with those families being depicted as being kind of wonderful and all wonderfully orchestrated as well and happy and that that's to a great degree, not the story. I can see it now looking back. The Duggars are probably the most famous, of course, TV quiverful family. They tried to, of course, that veneer has kind of been destroyed, but uh, they tried to look very picture perfect on TV. But as someone who grew up that way, I can see the toxic elements like, oh, you're doing thus and thus or dressing this way because you follow the same author that my parents followed. And I know that author and I know their awful ideas. Like it's something that you wouldn't catch unless you grew up part of that community. Okay, got it. So because I spent some time watching some of your videos, first of all, I know I'm a professional, so I don't know if I should appreciate this just as much as I did, but you use this expression, I shit you not. And I can't tell you how much I love that. (laughs) You know, sometimes you just have to kind of put it out there as it is like this might sound really crazy. But it actually happens, basically, is the theme of a, a lot of your videos. Oh, yeah. The main reason why I started making videos on TikTok was I just wanted to raise awareness. And I didn't think anyone would watch them, honestly. I didn't think that I would find so many people who were interested. But I wanted to raise awareness that there there are kids that grow up like me because we're very isolated. The big famous families are on TV, but there are plenty of us who are not on TV and we don't get to see the outside world and the outside world often doesn't get to see us. Homeschooling is a big part of what allows that to happen and the laws that govern homeschooling in this country or uh, the lack of laws more realistically. And that's something I wanted to draw attention to because most people don't know that. Most people wouldn't off the top of their head know what the homeschooling laws in their state are. Right. Can you give us a sense about just growing up, where you grew up, your family constellation, who was in it, how many were in it, et cetera? Yeah. So I grew up in a suburb of Salt Lake City, Utah, land of the Mormons. A lot of people assumed that I used to be Mormon, but no, my parents actually moved to Utah to evangelize the Mormons because in their mind, all the Mormons were going to hell. But we lived in an average suburb, which doesn't line up with some of my stories because it kind of sounds like I lived on a farm or I was out in the middle of nowhere, but I wasn't. I was surrounded by people, but I was a little bit a prisoner in my own home. I have six siblings. So our family is actually on the small end of these mega families. There probably would have been more kids, but my parents got divorced when I was 12. A big no-no in fundy circles. So that's another thing that's a little bit unique. My dad was not as into the lifestyle as my mom was. My mom really drove the train on everything quiverful and fundamentalist. And my theory is 
that I, she was definitely a narcissist. And people ask me like, oh, well, why did she get into this? Did she grow up that way? And she didn't. She grew up really average as far as I know. But my theory is that when she converted to Christianity as an adult, her narcissism led her to the most extreme version that she could find that allowed her to have the most control. I see. And so where are you in the group of seven? I am the third. So I escaped being like the oldest, but also also not the youngest. In big families like this, the older children often raise the younger children. And so I, because of course, parents can't devote that much time to that many kids. It's just physically impossible. So I was kind of in a sweet spot to be taught a lot by my older siblings, to be helped out a lot by them, but then to also turn around and teach my younger siblings, which I, I guess I consider a sweet spot, but it may be not so much <laughs> because I should, I should never have been expected to teach my siblings and, and do all the things that I, that I was required to do. That's a lot of responsibility. And it's also not an age appropriate responsibility and pressure and all of that. Oh no. So what was a day like in your home, a typical day? Well, the most obvious thing that sets it apart from most people's lives is going to be that we didn't go to school. And a lot of people hear that and they think homeschooling and they think, oh, you sat around like the kitchen table or at desks or whatever. And like you were taught, but like your teacher was your mom. That's what homeschooling is. Right. But not, not in our case. And I sometimes don't like to call it homeschooling because that just implies that there was education that was happening. (laughs) (laughs) It falls under homeschooling legally, but realistically it doesn't look like education at all. We would, I guess, wake up. The kids were in charge of making all the meals, cleaning the house, doing all the chores. In fact, we had we had lists of things to accomplish. Um, they weren't really followed up on, but only a small portion of that was actually schoolwork. And the schoolwork that was there was pretty minimal. Read something for an amount of time, like 40 minutes, read something or do some math, read the Bible. That was very mandatory. Read the Bible, memorize the Bible, memorize hymns, but then the rest of the list would be chores. So we would go through our list, but also we didn't have to. We didn't have to go through our list because that was never really checked up on or it was very inconsistently. But the chores and the meals and everything, that was required. We couldn't get away with not making breakfast. A lot of our day surrounded around meals because we would spend all this time making a meal. There was a whole ritual around sitting down for the meal. We rang an old-fashioned like farmhouse style bell to get everyone together for the meal, but then we would all have to sit there and wait until our parents or our mom, when my dad was gone, um, got to the table and sat down. So we'd all have to sit around and wait and they would take their uh, sweet time getting to the table. And then we would all have to pray together. And then we would have to pass all the dishes up to the head of the table and they would eat first and then pass it around to us. And then we could all eat. And then we had to sit at the table for sometimes up to an hour, half an hour to an hour. And we were just a captive audience for whatever lecture or instruction we were going to be given that day. And it was usually religious in nature. My mother would just talk on about whatever she wanted to talk on that day. And we couldn't leave until we were given permission to be excused. I know kind of a variant of that kind of meal. 
might be normal in a lot of families, but maybe it's something that happens like once a day or once a week or whatever. But this was three times a day we did this. <laughs> and then the kids would clean up the meal after it was done. And then by the time that's done with, you've got three hours until you have to start on the next meal. Like... <laughs> There's just not a lot of time in your day. And we would definitely, I think all of us had an interest in learning and wanted to learn. And so we would try and pursue what learning we could. Our, our options were just limited. Even the educational materials that we had available to us, they weren't taught to us. They were kind of just around if we wanted to pursue learning them, but it was never checked up on. Any work we did wouldn't be corrected, nothing like that. Again, I made a video of all the curriculum that we used. Because people are like, oh, what curriculum did you use? And I'm like, well, almost none. <laughs> like <laughs> math was probably the most concrete one where there was curriculum. But again, it was like, here's a book. You could do it, but you have to teach yourself. And there's going to be no corrections, no tests, no, no, nothing like that. So then where does the motivation come from? Was it just internally driven that you were interested in learning and you would learn? Because it's not always going to be the case for everyone. I think we did have a drive to learn. We were encouraged to read. And that was a big thing for me personally was read. I would read everything I got my hands on. And that's how I learned a lot. And my mom valued literature and reading, and she would actually read aloud to us when we were small, which I think I made a video on this too. I'm like, that is inherently positive, like read to your kids. But it has the negative side of her choosing to read books that were not age appropriate and were often violent stories of like missionaries going to other countries. There's always some negative, even when there's a positive in my childhood. How interesting. Yeah. Okay. I just want to say about that, that is actually a very common thing that there are kids who are now adults who come to see me who have some trauma from the stories and the visuals and things that they were exposed to when they were young that were related to their religious teaching, but they couldn't go see a movie that might have violence in it, but they could hear these very scary stories about not only things that happen to other people, but also seem to be woven in what could happen to you if you didn't do the following things, which is even scarier than seeing a horror movie. That is so absolutely true. I call it the persecution complex, which can be seen in some kind of mainstream American Christianity. But the idea that one day you'll be persecuted for your faith, you'll be killed for your faith. You have to stand up and say yes when someone like holds a gun to your head and asks if you're a Christian. I think this is really big in Christian schools. But in my experience, it was more like, well, you, I expected that I would grow up and be a missionary, if not like in a foreign country, but somewhere locally or whatever. And I just assumed I would be persecuted and probably killed because that's what happened to the people in the stories. And it actually gave me a horrible complex when I was a kid where I just couldn't stop thinking about death and my own death specifically because it freaked me out. And I was like, if I keep thinking about it, maybe one day it won't scare me anymore and I'll be brave like the heroes in the stories because they're not afraid. But of course, all it did was give me nightmares and trauma. <laughs> right, because that is what happens. I mean, people already, when you're young, you're prone to having nightmares anyway, as the part of your brain develops that for creativity and abstract thinking, you can move beyond just what you see in front of you and, and then anything is possible. And if you have fears 
if you have any kind of anxiety, it gets woven into, of course, your dreams, which then become nightmares. And then you can become fearful of going to sleep, actually. I don't know if that happened, if you would get scared at night. I was thinking about this recently, and I think I was so used to having nightmares that I just thought it was part of sleeping. So I didn't even know to be afraid of it because <laughs> I, <laughs> I just thought it was inevitable because not actually the worst nightmares weren't even about me dying. Well, in a way they were, but I was of course introduced to the concept of hell before I could talk. And you that's where you'll go if you tell lies or if, you, if you're bad or that you're inherently bad, you're already hell bound and you better get saved before this happens to you because I was saved technically at two years old of course I don't remember that but somebody of course said the words that I was supposed to repeat and I repeated after them and they were like I'm sure it was my mother but like yay you're a Christian now you're saved but of course it's not enough to be saved once you have to keep repenting and keep feeling guilt and uh. wow wow I mean it is like being on the witness stand and then you're found innocent and then you're on your way back to your car and they're like, nah, actually, no, go back on the witness stand, prove yourself again. I mean, sort of this rotational sort of thing, but then you're never quite free of that worry. And I wonder if that in some ways is a motivation to be quote unquote good. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's all the fear of hell is always dangling over your head. And that's what I would have nightmares about was about uh, unending fire. <laughs> uh -huh. Right. Yeah. Okay. So unending fire and a lot of other very scary thoughts. And so I'm so sorry that you had to deal with that. There are a lot of people who talk to me about that. Actually, a lot of people who grew up Jehovah's Witnesses who have a lot of the same kinds of fears of hellfire and demons, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, yes, absolutely. I oh, Some of this stuff I'm still kind of unpacking, even currently. Some of this stuff I didn't remember until a couple of years ago because I wasn't in a a safe enough like mental space and the the more stable I got in my adult life the more and more I remembered things from my childhood and woof, that's a lot but demons played a big part as well my mom thought that there were constantly you know angels and demons around you everywhere and I legit believed when I was a kid that I that I didn't understand like thoughts, like having your own thoughts. I thought that there, it was angels and demons whispering to you. And that was every thought that you had. If it was a good thought, then it was an angel that was talking in your head. And if it was a bad thought, then it was a devil, which sounds a lot like the, the angel and devil on your shoulders, like from cartoons. But I would have no context for that because I would have never seen a cartoon. It's incredible. Okay. Okay. So that also makes you, I think, disconnected from the self, right? That you're not having your own thoughts. They're created by other beings. And so that ties you to this sort of supernatural space, I guess, all day long, all night long. And it's hard, I think, for people to disconnect from that. Going to something that you were just saying about not being able to see cartoons. So a lot of people I work with will talk about having really big gaps in their exposure to what's happening around them, to society, to pop culture, not understanding references to things, not feeling a part of the world in that way, and needing to really, in a very serious way, play catch up if they want to be able to participate in conversations. Did you find that? Oh, absolutely. I'm still playing catch up and I've been out for seven years. This week, I discovered that 
my partner mentioned the Looney Tunes and I did not know what the Looney Tunes were and then felt real silly uh, when he explained it to me. And I was like, wait, everyone else knows this, don't they? Uh, but something like that happens quite regularly, a little less often than it used to. But yeah, when I first got out, I would be like, everyone's talking about Lord of the Rings, gotta watch Lord of the Rings. Everyone's talking about Harry Potter, gotta watch Harry Potter. Like I, I just would absorb myself in all the media that I heard spoken of around me so that, that I could understand it. Wow. And I think also that there can be a lot of fear in exposing yourself to those things, especially if you've been told that something is going to happen to you or it's punishable to expose yourself to certain things. It's hard, I think, to even just relax the first couple of times that you're watching something like this and not feeling you're going to be struck by lightning. That's true. I actually started watching movies secretly when I was a teenager, still living with my mother. And that was when I felt a whole lot of guilt and I would be sure to watch movies that were like probably appropriate. So if I got caught, I wouldn't get in like too much trouble. I made a video about the very first movie I watched in secret, which was The Parent Trap, which is so funny that that's the evil movie that I like. I knew I wouldn't be allowed to see when it's like a very wholesome family movie. (laughs) But one was just it was made by Disney. That might have been enough. I think Disney was allowed. So I grew up without any concept of Disney princesses or any of that. It's really hard to overstate the amount of media that I did not see. And the same goes for music. Any music we listened to was going to be mostly like Christian artists from the 80s or just classical music or hymns. That was pretty much it. Right. So now going back to you being homeschooled, really needing to be kind of self-propelled in terms of your motivation for education and learning and absorbing information, which is so lucky that you have that and that you had that. And I can tell by the way you speak that you're very bright. Your brain was probably needing that kind of stimulation and being able to create in some way or having a creative mind too. Of course, you're going to be looking to create certain things. I'm wondering... Also, just socially, did you have opportunities ever to be with other kids who were not part of your family or part of your community? And what was that like? Ooh, so this kind of changed throughout my time growing up because we did, we went to church. That was our main social outlet. And we actually, for the bulk of my childhood, went to churches that were fairly mainstream. So we were definitely like the weird culty family going to like the somewhat regular church. For that reason, when I was young, a lot of the regular kids at regular church did not want to speak to me or be my friend. I didn't know any of the references. I didn't know how to communicate with them. So that was a really kind of ostracizing thing that and I was the weird girl in long dresses (laughs) with all the siblings. The amount of friends I had kind of varied, but at a time I'd I'd maybe have like one or two friends. I would make friends with girls younger than me because they weren't as like judgmental. And I only realized recently that's not quite normal. Like if you're 12 and your bestie is like eight, that's not something your your average kid experiences in like your average school or whatever. When I was a teenager, my family got involved in homeschool Christian speech and debate. <laughs> which is like public school speech and debate, except uh, all the speeches are about how Jesus is great and abortion is bad. Um, (laughs) Only slightly overstating that. Um, And so I actually did make, that was the most social interaction 
that I had ever had. And so I did make friends there, but it wasn't a variety or diversity of friendships because everyone was like us. <laughs> and so I didn't get exposed to, you know, other thoughts or opinions or anything. Even in that realm, I was still the weird one because I was still dressed weird compared to the other kids who looked eh, kind of normal. I also have heard a lot about what you're talking about, about people being friendly with people outside of the group who are younger around that age as well, typically because from what you're saying that they're not necessarily going to give you that looking down their nose vibe that you get more with middle schoolers and high schoolers. But also I think as you get to be an age where people are starting to think about dating, it becomes, I think, safer to have friends who are younger, who are not going to be into that yet, because you're, I guess, not supposed to be into that. So it seems like it fits a little bit better without that same kind of conflict. Perhaps. I think when I had friends dramatically younger, I was not old enough to be interested in dating. Or, well, actually, if I was around 12, I mean, we weren't allowed to date. That wasn't something that was that was allowed for us. You're probably aware of like courting and that kind of more parent-directed, chaperoned kind of thing. Like you're supposed to have your first kiss on your wedding day. That's exactly what was expected of me, that I would maybe maybe hold hands. Like once you're engaged, you could hold hands with somebody, but that just physical connection with anyone was completely off the table. Because once you give your heart away to someone, you can't get it back. Wow. My family took that to an extreme, but that is a surprisingly mainstream view. And a lot of fundamentalism is just what's mainstream, but you just dial it up to an extreme. So true love waits, promise rings, encouraging, like, wait until marriage, all that seems normal. You hear it a lot. You dial it up and suddenly it's like, you can't be alone with anyone until you're married. You can't kiss anyone before you're married. You'll be used goods. You'll be, no one will want you, that kind of thing. And I was not interested in boys because I was mostly into girls, but I didn't realize it because I didn't know that was an option. <laughs> right. And so then I'm curious about that. Just there isn't going to be education about the body or about those kinds of feelings. Right. Oh, there was zero education about anything. No sex education was given whatsoever. Not even any information about puberty at all. I had my first period and didn't know what it was. It wasn't like, oh, I was forgotten. It happened to my siblings too. The amount that that will mess you up. <laughs> right. But how terrifying, how terrifying to not know why that's happening to your body. Absolutely. A sibling of mine started developing and growing breasts and thought that they had cancer because they didn't know that that would happen to them all they knew is that they had strange lumps in their body like and that's but the, I think the thought was if we don't tell our kids about their bodies or about sex then they'll never be interested in it, in it they'll never know it exists We'll keep them pure until the day they are wed. <laughs> but that's not that's not how humans work. That's not how our bodies work. You're going to be full of hormones and angst and curiosity. <laughs> right. I mean, it's a very important thing to go over because there's so much about also understanding 
the body, but also understanding the feelings you're having, the urges that you're having. People do sometimes think that something is tremendously wrong with them, especially if they're raised in these environments and they're having those kinds of sexual feelings, but especially sexual feelings towards someone of the same gender, you know, then that has to somehow become a secret because I have a feeling, well, I'll ask, (laughs) how was that talked about or was that talked about as something punishable or sinful? I can remember the exact conversation because I had heard something about homosexuality. And I asked my mom, like, what is that? And she said it was when two men pretend that they are married. That was her answer. And that's all I knew. So I thought it was something, something bad that men did. So I didn't know that it could apply to me in any way whatsoever. Incredible. So then how did you handle those years. I mean, those years, not only 18 years are awful for a lot of reasons for anybody, but just having so much emotion also, which is all very part, you know, like part and parcel of being those ages. A lot of people already feel out of control, but if you feel like there's something wrong with you or you don't understand what's happening to your body, it can create an inordinate amount of not only anxiety, but secrecy. Absolutely. I didn't necessarily think that something was wrong with me for not like feeling attraction to people. I actually thought there was there was something wrong with people who were attracted to boys because of course the pure women did not experience attraction, of course. But I was still had a very vivid fantasy life because I was full of angst and hormones, but because I had no education, no concept of consent, everything I knew about sex I had read in the Bible. And nothing in the Bible ever happens consensually. And most of it is just violence done to women. And so that is the only concept that I had. And I knew I had these urges and these feelings, but the only concept that I had was was the violence in the Bible. And so that's what I would fantasize about because that's all that I knew. And so I wouldn't think about like, oh, that boy, my age is cute. And for one thing, we were also around so few people that I don't think there were boys my age that I even knew. But uh, So I wouldn't be like, ooh, daydreaming about some cute boy my age. I would be thinking about grown men at church, like harming me. That's what I would think of because I had, I had no other concept. Right. I mean, you can only go with what you've been taught and you can only go with your frame of reference is that it's such an alarming thing to hear about that. I hear so much about these kinds of things. And now people I'm sure reaching out to you and relating their stories to you will talk about how, when there is this intention that goes in one direction, but goes to the extreme, it usually has the opposite impact. So then to keep you kind of safe and pure you're having, I mean, I'm, I'm using these words, you didn't use them, but you might be having like rape scenarios and fantasies with older men. Absolutely. From your Bible teachings, which makes <laughs> sense, right? And it's not a pathology. It's just the, those are the visuals and those are the scenes that have been created in the stories that you've been told. Yeah, Absolutely. When you asked how, like, how I spent my teenage years, I also spent them entirely depressed and for a few years, like, literally bedridden because I had no will to live anymore. I had 
some losses happen all at once. My my dad left. My older sister had been kicked out of the house because she was rebellious and I wasn't allowed to talk to her. And then my best friend, the closest friend that I had managed to make at that time died in a car accident. I was 13 and I was like, well, I'm going to go to bed and then I'm just not, I'm just not going to get up. I had no will to live. I had nothing, I had nothing to wake up for. I had no school. I had, I didn't have people close to me. Like I had siblings who cared, but they didn't know how to communicate with me, how to console me. It was, it was a hard time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll go with that. Uh, It sounds awful, actually. And my mom completely dropped the ball. Her feelings on mental illness was like, ah, like, does it exist or is it, it, maybe it's just demons. (laughs) Like, uh, and so we weren't big on going to doctors, seeking mental health help. No, none of that. Medical help, like, Barely. Like, I don't think I saw a doctor or a dentist until I was 12. And part of that could have just been because we were very poor because we kept having children. (laughs) But a a switch kind of flipped when I got so depressed because I looked like I was ill and I felt horrible because I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't eating, I had no will to live. And so my mom became convinced that I had, I must have some illness that must be discovered. And so then that became also years of going to doctors and having various tests and procedures done that I did not need. <laughs> oh no. It's not necessarily a fundy specific thing. I have heard from other people who went through similar things, unnecessary medical procedures and such, all because she couldn't accept that I was in an abusive environment and could not thrive in an abusive environment. But of course she couldn't admit that because she was the one creating the environment. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, a couple things about that. A couple, 12, 12 things about that. One <laughs> is I'm so sorry that you went through suffering with that level of depression, one loss after another, without it being addressed and dealt with, without having anyone to really talk to about it. And then if you did have someone, it would have been your friend and then your friend was gone. So then also not being raised with talking about feelings, you're not going to have the language to use to describe what you're feeling, even to yourself. And to be able to say, oh, I think this is depression. That's not uncommon for kids. Teenagers usually will have more of a sense of it. They've heard the language or they've heard it in school or they've heard other people talk about it. I have also worked with a lot of people who have been treated for other things that they didn't need to be treated for because the actual source of the problem was denied. It was kind of uncomfortable or it wasn't supposed to be happening that way. So there's a lot of unnecessary tests and a lot of time that passes where you could have been getting relief in a real way, but that that wasn't afforded to you. And I'm really sorry you had to suffer with that. I mean... It is what it is. Looking back, it's almost like a story that happened to a different person. I'm sure it feels like you're a lifetime away from that. And so my question is how you came through it. I mean, when you said it lasted a few years, what ended that period of time of just deep depression? There's never one moment, at least for me, there wasn't like one aha moment. It was like, okay, 
I've spent a year in bed and maybe now the next year I spent like in a chair. So that's an improvement. The next year I started going to church more regularly. So I was getting out of the house and that's a, that's an improvement. So it just was kind of incremental. Also being on the internet helped a lot. Since I was sick, I had privileges that my siblings didn't. The internet was still completely monitored. My mom could see everywhere that I had gone on the internet. So I had to be careful, but just, I joined a Christian message board where I could talk to people and kind of have an online world. And then I made like a secret email and then, you know, started secretly watching movies because since I was the sick one, I got to have a laptop and none of the other kids did. I guess that was kind of my window into the outside world, even as I like kind of languished in a basement. (laughs) So I think part of what happens when you have exposure to the rest of the world, I mean, it's also so much of human nature to want to push the walls out and to see what kind of freedom you have and to see what you can also kind of get away with having your own email address and all that, just being able to have your own life even if you weren't going to be doing something awful, it's just something that people might not have known about, which always feels really good to know that you have some sort of privacy. Of course, it's called secrecy and it's called bad in a lot of these groups, but it's just privacy. And I think also seeing that there's a way out. There are things that you might enjoy doing at some point or things that can make you smile or make you laugh that you could find on the internet and just knowing that you don't have to just succumb to what you're exposed to and that that's it. I think just seeing that the world also is not such an awful place out there might have helped a bit too. Do you think that played a part of it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's also hard to say when I had the like aha moment of like, I need to leave the house. I think basically it was when I turned 18, I was like, I can leave, like legally, I knew you don't have to live at home if you're 18. Then I became more depressed because I had no education. I had no diploma. I was lucky enough to have a driver's license again, because I was the good child and the sickly child. Siblings who were more rebellious did not get driver's licenses, like my sister that was kicked out. But so I did have a driver's license. I was also lucky enough to have a birth certificate. Not all kids who grew up Bundy even have birth certificates or social security numbers. So I honestly had an easier time than a lot of other people do. I also had a lot of family that was not fundamentalist. I had grandparents, I had aunts and uncles. And at that point I had two sisters who had left. So I knew I knew I had some resources, but it's still like, how does one find a place to live? I don't know. How does one find a job? I don't know. What kind of job am I qualified for? Probably no job because I was raised to be somebody's wife, somebody's property. I was supposed to take care of kids for the rest of my life. That was what I was supposed to do. So I wasn't prepared to be a functional member of society. One more thing before you go. I'm so happy that you're getting to know Anna. She's somebody who was brought to my attention, actually, by my kids who had noticed her on TikTok. 
they independently got in touch with me and said, hmm, this is a person putting out some great content and you might be interested in meeting her. And I reached out to her. So thank you, kids. I think it really is quite incredible to hear her speak as well. There are some people where they immediately bring out my maternal instinct. She is one of those people. And I felt impressed by her, but also protective of her as she was talking. I was trying to imagine her life growing up. It's hard enough being a kid in the world, being an adolescent in the world, going through comparing yourself to others, knowing that they are checking you out from head to toe to see if you fit in, if you're just the right look, size, fashion, and have just the right expressions and hairdo or muscle tone or whatever it is. I think that so many people go through needing to address issues around body positivity and self-acceptance. Coming from a place, though, where you're wearing a prairie dress with a turtleneck underneath it and trying to fit in is a near impossibility. But not only that, having your games be different than other people's when you're running around the house with your siblings, your language is different. The way you interact with people is different. What you think is quote unquote normal is very different. And so there are so many people out there who have dealt with this. Many people who listen to this show have dealt with this. And so it's really good, I think, for people like Anna and others to know that they're not alone. And by putting this content out there, they, I'm sure, get feedback that is not so great and not so supportive and might be making fun. But by and large, people are writing in and saying, I can relate. And maybe I didn't have the exact same story, but I can relate. There is something so important about feeling like you're part of something that you can fit into society, that you have a point of connection. And sometimes that point of connection is just somebody who doesn't treat you like a freak. I could mince words here, but I'm getting right to the point. So many people have this sense of feeling so different because that's the way they're treated. People will avert their eyes as they walk past, will not sit next to them at the lunch table at school, don't want to walk home from school with them, don't want to be seen with them. I saw something on TV recently about the Turpin family, two of the older daughters who escaped from this horrible house in California. And at the end of the show, if you check it out, there were people who remembered these girls from when they were young and now were apologizing, basically, that when they were young and they saw these girls being so different, having clothes on that were dirty, that were, I mean, forget about out of fashion. I mean, it was just, you could tell there had been abuse, neglect. Most of the kids moved away from them, didn't want to be seen with them or made fun of them. And in fact, teachers, administrators didn't really jump on the fact that they could see something was wrong. 
something was different. One of the things that prompted me to become a therapist actually was I was studying in undergrad in Boston and studying education, special ed, general ed, which I loved and still love. But the main teacher, when I was student teaching, came up to me and said, you're actually really bad at classroom management, which is a horrible way to start a phrase. You're really bad at, but she was right. I was terrible at classroom management. If kids were not paying attention and everyone was chatting, I don't raise my voice. I don't yell. I know you don't have to, but I'm just bad at that. But she said, you might think about becoming a therapist, which I had actually already been thinking about. But I said, why do you say that? And she said, because you notice things and that's why you're not managing the classroom. You will wonder why that boy in the back of the class keeps coming to school in the middle of winter with no coat. You'll wonder why this girl in our class always needs to borrow food from other people. You'll wonder why the parents who pick up so-and-so start fighting with them right away and get into an argument and there's tension right from the start. You'll wonder why certain kids are ostracized. You pinpoint certain people and notice them. And you wonder about their life outside of school too. So yes, the message I'm sending to you is notice and wonder. I'm not saying you have to be like me. I'm just saying so many people have said to me, I lived my life feeling like I was living in kind of on another planet. And people ignored me. They walked past me. They seemed uncomfortable. But what I really needed every once in a while was someone to lean in and just wonder, safely wonder, not with a pointing finger, not with a laugh, but to wonder why someone seemed to not have any idea of appropriate social reference or even pop culture reference why someone looked like they're dressed from another century. What's different about their life? What constraints have been put around their reality to make them live a very different life and to make them potentially have to show up in public with other people knowing, knowing that they look different, knowing that people are going to be staring or people are going to be asking. Now, some people who have talked to me about wearing turbans when they were young or wearing other religious garb felt proud of it and they were happy to be asked. But usually that's because the environment was safe enough for that. So be the safe person who can come up to somebody and just befriend them. And know that if they're different, that there's something different about their life, which they may or may not be feeling confident about. Anna could have used people early on to connect with, to help her feel, quote unquote, accepted and normal, no matter what. Unfortunately, it's not the way people operate. It's not the way teens operate. It's not the way preteens operate. And it's not the way some adults operate. But if you can be the connection to the world, to someone, 
you actually don't have to do something monumental. You can just say hello. And you can always find a point of connection. Even if it's not how they're dressed or what their belief system is, it could be that your point of connection is that you have a similar sense of humor or that you like the same color, whatever it is. But help someone feel that they're not terminally unique and wildly different to the point where they feel they're relegated to the shadows or that they have to stay in their community or their family community in order to have any community at all. I look forward to having you hear more from Anna next week. Talk to you soon. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.